Chapter 15 of Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham McMillan. Bonaparte in Egypt and the Egyptians of Today by Haji A. Brown. Chapter 15 An Ungrateful People. Bulak had fallen on the 14th of April, 1800. Exactly two months later, on the 14th of June, General Kleber was assassinated. He was taking a morning walk in the garden of General Dugua's house, when a young man, a Syrian, approached him as if to offer a petition, and before the unfortunate general could detect his purpose, struck him several blows in the breast with a dagger. The assassin was arrested soon after, and made a confession. Of his guilt there could be no doubt, but his confession, being made under torture, was of course perfectly worthless. In it he stated that he had been employed to commit the infamous deed by a high officer of the Turkish army that Kleber had defeated at Materia, that he was a Syrian, and that he had only been in Egypt for a few weeks, were facts that were easily established. The French believed, however, that he was encouraged, if not instigated, by Egyptians. And although there was absolutely nothing to suggest that this was the case, except perhaps their keen sense of the hatred with which they were regarded, they determined to discover all that could be discovered of the origin of the crime. The wretched prisoner was therefore handed over to the care of the chief of the police, a Greek of infamous character, a notorious evil-liver, detested and abhorred by all for his wanton cruelties, abominable vices, and utter depravity. Selected for the post he held as one whose unbridled and unconcealed hatred for the people of the country was a guarantee of his fidelity to the French, his selection is an all-too-eloquent testimony as to the real nature of the relations between the French and the Egyptians. No man viler, more depraved, or more despicable could have been placed in a position such as that accorded to this villain a position that practically placed him above and beyond all law and all restraint, and gave free scope to his inhumanity, his outrageous vices, and devilish passions. Like Oakes, he delighted to seduce and betray his fellow men. Like Jeffreys, he rejoiced when sending them to prison, torture, or death. Like the caitiff James, he reveled in witnessing their anguish and agonies. To this wretch, Kleber's assassin was handed over, and by him almost all that could be done by torture or otherwise to induce the criminal to denounce others as his accomplices or abettors was tried at length when all other means had failed to accomplish the end at which he aimed the wretch persuaded his miserable victim by a promise of free pardon to himself to give the names of some sheiks of the azhar to whom as he admitted he had made known the purport of his visit to cairo one of these sheiks it was found had already left the country but the others were at once arrested these admitted that they had been spoken to on the subject by the prisoner, but asserted, and as it would appear truly, that they endeavoured to dissuade him from the commission of the crime, and, on finding that he persisted in his intention, had kept aloof from him. But while granting the full value of the plea the sheiks thus offered, it must be admitted that the French were justified, by all known law and custom, in sentencing them to death, as, had they denounced the Syrians' intention, there is no doubt that this crime would have been effectually prevented. The sentence passed upon the assassin does not admit of equal justification. Kleber, whatever his faults or errors as an administrator, or however harsh and faithless his treatment of the Egyptians had been, was a brave and gallant gentleman, a man of whom his countrymen were and are justly proud, and one who had endeared himself to all under his command. While in the position in which they then were, the whole body of the French looked up to him as the only one from whom they could seek or obtain the leadership so essential to their almost desperate cause but with the fullest sympathy for the bitterness of spirit that must at the moment have oppressed the French. It is impossible to condone the sanction they accorded to the base treachery of their minion, the chief of the police, by whom the pardon he had promised the assassin, as the price to be paid him for giving up the names of the sheiks, was withdrawn immediately the names had been given, and without the slightest pretext being offered for this vile breach of faith. 
nor can the sentence passed be regarded as otherwise than a brutal one though it was not indeed more so than others that have been passed by nations and peoples claiming to represent the most advanced civilization it was that the prisoner's right hand should be cut off that he should witness the execution of the sheikhs and that he should himself be impaled alive the execution of the condemned men was fixed to take place immediately after the funeral of the general and it was wholly in vain that some of the sheikhs and notables pleaded for a mitigation of the penalty on the appointed day the prisoners were marched out to a rising ground on the route the general's funeral was to follow and posted there at the spot selected for the execution they were compelled to view the mournful procession that with all the pomp of a state ceremony accompanied the general's remains to the temporary burial ground in which they were to be laid there on the completion of the funeral rites the sentences on the condemned men were carried out and the sheikhs having been beheaded the wretched assassin was impaled alive and left to linger in the most horrible anguish for over four hours a punishment such as this was not then nor ever can be other than purely and simply an act of vengeance in the east especially it is but a perversion of terms to pretend that such penalties can be justified as deterrence history proves conclusively that they have no such effect except perhaps for the moment but that they have the effect of hardening and brutalizing the hearts of those they are supposed to terrify is certain in the present case there was not even the slightest ground of excuse the criminal was a foreigner and it had been clearly proved at his trial that his crime had met with no encouragement or sympathy from the people of the country the whole conduct of the people from the first arrival of the french had been sufficient to show that there was absolutely no reason to suspect them of any desire to repeat in any form the crime that this foreigner had committed three times peace had been declared in cairo by the french and three times the people though on two occasions most unwillingly accepting the peace, had kept it loyally and with the most perfect and submissive good faith. In the revolt and the siege they had shown with what pleasure they could set themselves to the task of slaying the French, but peace once declared, all ranks and grades of Frenchmen went about in perfect safety. The French complained that the people were ungrateful, but does it not seem that the people might have retorted that the French were infinitely more so? There remains but little to be said of the French occupation. After the death of Kleber, the command of the army devolved upon General Manau. As he had for some time professed himself a convert to Islam, and had married a woman of the country, it might have been thought that the change would have tended to promote better feelings between the two peoples. It proved otherwise. None of the Egyptians believed in the sincerity of the general's conversion, and it had therefore no other effect than to discredit the professions of sympathy for Islamic ideas that other Frenchmen made, and perhaps to raise hopes that they were not to be fulfilled. As a measure tending to conciliate French feeling, the ulema had asked for and obtained permission to close the Azhar Mosque, which, from its great extent and the straggling irregular arrangement of its courts and their surrounding buildings, was of all others the place most capable of affording shelter to strangers visiting the town with evil intent. But the French were quite unable to appreciate the true meaning of this action, and actuated by a vindictive spirit most unworthy of a civilized people, sought further vengeance for the crime of a foreigner upon the unhappy Egyptians. A heavy contribution was therefore exacted, and European and native Christians vied with each other in heaping insult and contumely upon the Muslims. Some steps were indeed taken by Manau that seemed to have been intended to favor the Muslims and gain their support. Thus the Diwan was reorganized, and for the first time under the French was composed exclusively of Mohammedans, one French official only being appointed to assist at its meetings. In the government service also, cops were largely replaced by Mohammedans, a step that exceedingly embittered the Copts. And the French were subjected to the taxes from which they had theretofore been free, a measure that excited their indignation. With scarcely an exception, the French were heartily sick of the country. 
all the enthusiasm by which they had at first been stimulated had vanished they had arrived in egypt looking for a sojourn that should be a triumphal progress towards the attainment of great ideals and vast projects it was to be the first step as they had hoped towards making france the mistress of the world but save for the first victory over the mamelukes the story of their stay in the land was little else but one of disappointments losses and vexations for the suppression of the revolt the routing of the turkish army and the retaking of cairo were not events upon which they could look with other than bitter feelings since although victories all the circumstances surrounding them tarnished the little glory they might have possessed under happier conditions but general manau was not so weary or so hopeless as his countrymen he still thought it possible to colonize the country and to establish french influence upon a safe basis it had been the blunder or rather the weakness of bonaparte and kleber that they had not realized the truth burke taught that the temper of the people amongst whom he presides ought to be the first study of a statesman bonaparte had thought to win his way by wheedling and failing to do so had turned to force kleber had had no other conception than that of the iron hand as we nowadays term it and had not the tact to clothe it with the pretense of a glove Manau seems to have sought to play the part of the old man in the fable and try to please everybody with the inevitable result of pleasing none on the one hand as we have just seen he favored the moslems in some few respects on the other he offended their keenest prejudices by allowing wine to be sold and drunk openly in the streets while encouraged by the protection granted them by the french the lowest classes of the christians and mohammedans gave themselves up to an open practice of vice and immorality that had never before been permitted this alone was a wanton outrage upon the sentiments of the whole of the respectable population christian as well as mohammedan that was sufficient to make the french hated and detested by all but the most debased a class which in egypt even to-day after a century of the nourishing protection of european civilization is infinitely smaller in proportion to the population than in any other country except a few like persia that are almost entirely outside of or beyond that protection not that the french in egypt by any means laid themselves open to a charge of profligacy there seems no reason to believe that they did anything of the kind but that which to them was entirely unobjectionable was to the easterns among whom they were dwelling utterly abominable thus the drinking of wine in public and the free intercourse of the two sexes in public places however innocent to the french were to the egyptians something more than simply distasteful and that they should be so is a matter not only of custom and habit but one of climatic and other conditions which europeans ignore to the moslem peoples these things are subject to the further objection that they are opposed to the teaching of their religion at length the day came for the french to go the english and the turks had brought their combined forces to bear and not only was an english fleet once more off alexandria but colonel baird with a strong force of sepoy soldiers from india had arrived by the red sea for the french to have attempted to hold out against the enemy that was now at their door would have been an act of madness but it was at least possible for them to ask and to obtain honourable terms and these having been granted the evacuation of the country was agreed upon and the french rejoiced at the prospect of once more returning to their beloved native land for the second time during their stay prepared to quit a country to which so many bitter memories were attached in june eighteen o one just a year after the death of kleber the french garrison of cairo capitulated but manau held out for some time longer and only resigned himself to the inevitable on the thirtieth of august and on the eighteenth of september sailed for europe thus ingloriously ended the great dream of a french empire in the east at cairo nothing could exceed the joy of the people as they at last saw the now utterly hated and detested foreigners leaving in their case it was eminently true that the evil that men do lives after them 
they had sown the seeds of a bitterness of feeling toward all europeans and of a mistrust of european civilization that still bear fruit and still retard the advancement of that country it was the french occupation that proved the greatest difficulty and stumbling-block in the way of the english occupation and for such a long time rendered the task that the english administrators had undertaken seem almost a forlorn hope every promise and pledge offered by the english was weighed in the scale of those made by bonaparte and his successors every profession of respect for the institutions and religion of the country was interpreted by the recollection of the french cavalry stabled in azar and the tyrannies vexations and outrages upon their most cherished prejudices that the people had sustained under the french it has been the custom to trace to the french occupation whatever advance the country has since made in two ways only had it any lasting beneficial effect it brought to the attention of the few men like gabarty a keen sense of the great advantages of an orderly government and a warm appreciation of the advance that science and learning had made in europe and it opened the way for the man who was to be the real founder and maker of egypt today. these were the only two benefits that the french left behind them and the greatest of these was quite unintentional and unforeseen as to all else the occupation left nothing but evil memories and evil influences behind it it had lowered the moral standard of the lowest classes had taught these to look upon vice and immorality from a new and more debasing point of view and had almost wholly destroyed the controlling influence the ulema and better classes had theretofore exercised upon them european historians have never seen that this is so that they should fail to see it is not surprising since even the europeans living in the country are incapable of perceiving it the european standard of morality is so different to that of the eastern and he is so fanatically attached to his own ideas that he cannot understand any one rejecting these except from sheer perversity for thousands of years the egyptians have been accustomed to bathe freely in the nile to-day they are debarred at cairo and elsewhere lest the sight of a nude figure should shock some sensitively minded european who happens to look up from his or her perusal of the latest london society scandal it is so much easier to see the moat than the beam the modern englishman will scarcely admit that his ancestors who in the time of shakespeare and long after were accustomed to call a spade a spade and never blushed to crack a plain-spoken jest had in truth a moral standard higher than his own and that the man who keeps these things from his intimate friends in his hours of abandon is less healthy in mind and morals than the man who thinks no shame to speak them openly the difference between the two types is the difference that prevails between the european and the oriental standard of decency hence to-day as in the time of the french occupation the verdict that either of the peoples would pass upon the decency and morality of the other would be utter condemnation but this fact remains that throughout the whole of islam openly practised vice and immorality exist only under the actively exercised protection of the christian powers not only so but if the traveller wishes to gauge with infallible accuracy the extent of the influence exercised by the christian powers in any mohammedan country he can do so by simply ascertaining the extent of the open vice and immorality that is permitted this is the true hallmark of european civilization in moslem lands but among the frenchmen with the expedition there were as there always are when a number of frenchmen are brought together men of high ideals men whom to know is to esteem from their altogether too restricted and hampered intercourse with such the men of kindred type among the ulema and notables learned to appreciate to some extent the better side of european civilization they saw clearly too that there was nothing in the civilization that such men represented that could be held as inimical to islam or contrary to its teaching to the present day the conviction they thus acquired is bearing good fruit prior to the french occupation thanks to the utter isolation of the country it was the common and universal belief that everything connected 
with the social and moral condition of Europeans, was in its nature essentially anti-Islamic and accursed. Precisely the same idea still widely prevails in Persia and other parts of the Mohammedan East today, as well as throughout the whole of the north of Africa. But the truly honest man, honest in spirit as well as deed, recognizes his fellow of whatever race, religion, or speech he may be. Gabardy and his peers in Cairo were no exception to the rule, and could discern with infallible accuracy the men who really desired to benefit the country and the people. For such they had unbounded goodwill and respect, and throughout their intercourse with these they acquired some knowledge of the latent possibilities of that civilization of which the expedition, as a whole, was such a poor exponent. It was in this way that the arrival of the French in Egypt was, as I have termed it, the dawn of the new period. But I have used the term dawn as the only one the language gives me, though it does not rightly express the meaning I wish to convey. For this dawn of the new period was not the bright, rosy dawn of day, but the faint, dimly discernible dawn to which the Arabs give the name El Fujr. The true dawn was to come later, and its herald was to be not a Frenchman, nor a man of learning or culture, but a Muslim, an illiterate and holy self-made man. I have had to say some hard things of the French, but before passing on to consider events that followed their departure, I must pause to say that I would not have the reader suppose that in speaking of the occupation I have myself forgotten the necessity of remembering time and place I pointed out to others in an earlier chapter. In this, as in other things, the reader must remember that I am, in this book, endeavouring to present to him the story of the development of modern Egypt as it presents itself to one who knows the Egyptians of today, and who, from his religious and other sympathies with them, can understand how the events of which he speaks has affected them in the past and does so in the present. There is no charge more constantly or more unjustly brought against the Egyptian than that he is ungrateful for the benefits and blessings that European governments and peoples have conferred upon him. The charge, I repeat, is absolutely unjust, and could never be made were it not for the failure of those who make it to recognize two of the most important factors in the evidence they ought to weigh before attempting any judgment upon the question. These factors are, first, that the Egyptians and their rulers were never one and the same people, and secondly, that to a large extent the very things for which their gratitude is asked are frequently those that most grate upon their feelings and susceptibilities. I have pointed out these facts before, but they are so constantly and so widely ignored that I desire to impress them upon the reader's attention in the hope that he, at least, will in future bear them in mind whenever he is called upon or tempted to criticize the Egyptians. It has, therefore, been from no wish to say unkindly things of the French that I have felt bound to speak strongly of the darker side of the French occupation. This should indeed be clear from the references I have made to the conditions prevailing in England at that time. I no more think that the French in Egypt were actuated by any evil or ignoble intentions than that the English government of that day did not believe itself the most perfect conceivable. But the facts of history show that both were, in blundering ignorance, pursuing their way by means and methods the truth justice and equity must condemn if then any french reader should feel aggrieved by what i have said of the occupation let him console himself with my assurance that if i had been writing of the english government of that day and its conception of justice i should have had to denounce it as one of the most brutal and brutalizing ever known and infinitely worse than any that egypt has ever had let him who doubts the justice of this judgment turn to the records of the time or, if he prefers to seek its confirmations in lighter literature, let him take up Dickens' Barnaby Rudge. The failure of the French occupation was due to the fact that it was a military occupation, having for its first and chief aim the acquisition of territory and the extension of empire. 
and that its leaders were mainly men of the ambitious, unreflecting temperament of the typical soldier or freebooter, who looks to a victory of arms as the highest and noblest achievement worthy of his efforts. Had it been possible for the French savants to have landed in the country alone, and to have pursued their aims in the peaceful way they would have chosen, nothing but good could have come of their presence in the country. But the exigencies of a great military expedition, and the selfish aims of its leaders, destroyed almost all possibility of the occupation benefiting the country, and, placing endless barriers in the way of those who would and could have influenced the future of the country for the welfare and happiness of the people, baffled all their efforts to do so. It is, and forever must be so. Civilization and empire are two different aims. And just as no man can serve two masters, neither can he pursue two aims, lest of all two aims that must be in so many points in constant and irreconcilable conflict. Not indeed that there is any such incompatibility as to prevent the coexistence of civilization and empire, but the man or government that seeks to introduce either into a foreign country will forever find that he must sacrifice now one and now the other if he is to attain either. Unhappily, in the French occupation in Egypt, it was civilization that had to give place to empire, and the result, as we have seen, was the utter failure of both. Many thousands of lives have been offered up on the altar of the great Bonaparte's ambition. When he entered the country, the feeling of the people towards Christian Europe was one of disdain. When the last of the expedition had departed, it left behind it an ill-will born of tyranny, broken promises, and outraged prejudices and susceptibilities a bitterness that all the long years that have since passed have not wholly buried, a bitterness that still exists, and that always will exist, unless and until Christian Europe learns that it has no right to force its ideals upon a Muslim people, and that, however pure and beneficent its intentions may be, so long as it persistently and from day to day insists upon outraging their religious, moral, and social instincts and desires, it has no just ground for accusing them of being an ungrateful people. End of chapter 15. An Ungrateful People. Recording by Graham McMillan. San Diego, California.